Great. Thanks, Paul. Uh, do you know that this year, so far, 62 teenagers have died in London? 62. Uh, we, on Thursday night, for the event that some of you were at, put together a PowerPoint. When we put together the PowerPoint, I say we, it was actually Nathan who did this royal we, involved myself in it somehow. <laughs> uh, when Nathan put together the PowerPoint a few days beforehand, the figure stood at 60. By the time we showed it on Thursday night, it was out of date. The figure was 62. Uh, uh, the letter that you've got to sign that little petition uh, put together, actually, by Florence Eshimololi. Um, sh she's worked with us really hard, and the goal is, as Stuart was saying, that we should somehow or the other inherit the police station just next door to us to open as a youth centre, but also work for elderly people, etc., etc. That is very important. I was away uh, last Sunday. I wasn't here because I was in... Uh, Zimbabwe, um, and meeting with uh, the leaders of the different oasis countries. We work in various countries around the world and uh, uh, a small number of African countries as well. And so in Zimbabwe, uh, last Sunday morning, I spoke at a church service. They had no PowerPoint. They had no bands. They had nothing. They had benches to sit on. It was packed. The only instrument they had was um, one kind of rattle with some beans in. And uh, uh, the youth group in the church led the songs and the dancing, which was um, great because dance was very much part of this. Nathan, I think you need to get into this a bit later on. <laughs> and, uh, and the service lasted for three hours. They asked me to preach for an hour. So I think this is probably a precedent. But the interesting thing about all of this, besides applaud, applauding furiously throughout everything that happened, after I had spoken, a guy stepped up to do the notices, which they didn't even bother to call community news. And the uh, leader of the service said, and now the notices! And they all roared with excitement. So this is what we're going to introduce into our church from now on. <laughs> They roared with excitement, which lasted for 25 minutes. And they cheered and chanted throughout all of this. Well, the point is, I was in Zimbabwe because uh, it's one of the countries we work in. And uh, Oasis works in. And in uh, Zimbabwe, we have set up 99 thus far preschools. So these are... Fantastic educational standards, the um, the artwork and the uh, uh, on the, the the walls, the fantastic numeracy and literacy stuff was brilliant and is not in some of the schools that we first become responsible for in this country. The standard was outstanding, ninety nine schools. But not only do that do we do that? We work, we begin six new schools each year, and then we give away six each year. So what we do is we train people in teaching skills, and then they set up the, uh, the uh, preschool program, numeracy and literacy. They run that in the villages, in the tough areas, and um, we train them and we work with them, and it's an economic model for them. So it provides... <laughs> 
income, but it also provides education. So there are 99 of these. Um, 79 we've given away completely. They're independent. We still work with them to support them. 20 we're still nurturing. Six more we begin next year, and six we give away. I also visited one of our self-help groups. We run 87 self-help groups for women, all for women. Microfinance schemes, saving schemes, investment schemes, so they can start businesses. 87 of those. On Thursday, we were meeting here to discuss the police station. On Sunday, I was in Zimbabwe seeing some of this incredible stuff. Why do I tell you about all of that? I hope it become obvious. Um, through this week, these weeks, we've been looking, as Anna's already said, at the rough guide, a rough guide to the Apostles' Creed. Some of you are visiting this morning, so just let me say this. The Apostles' Creed, which is said in churches all over the world, uh, was written a long, long, long time ago. Um, it was written uh, first um, in the 200s, really. And it's come down to us, and it says these things. And this morning, we're going to look at the big, bold sentence there. We're working our way through this, slightly out of order, actually. But we're wor working our way through this, and this morning, we've got this phrase, he, that's Jesus, ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, if you've been around, you'll know that there are some big things missing from the Apostles' Creed, and there are several other creeds that came after it, the Nicene Creed, etc., etc., and there are, uh, there are big things missing. Uh, we've talked about one of those things, I talked about one of the things that miss is missing from the creed um, a few weeks ago, and it's the concept that God is love. You have a kick quick scan through that there is absolutely no mention of God's love yet all of our songs this morning have centered on that theme but it's just absent altogether it's missing the creeds you see aren't kind of like this is the acid test of everything a church should believe they were written when they were written to combat things that were going on around them they were written because of uh, concerns that people had at that time in that place, and they leave out as much as they put in. There are some other things, big things, that are missing out of that creed, huge things that we've talked about already this morning. I wonder if you can spot any of them. Just have a quick whip through. What do you say? Besides the fact that it doesn't talk about God is love, what else do you think is missing out of that famous thing that said in churches all over the world every week. Have a guess. Shall I introduce you to just two? Yeah? So here we go. Right, this is the creed again. Boom, with some question marks in. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And then it says straight afterwards, like go back to this one, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried, descended into hell and on the third day rose again. I left a big line with questions. This says absolutely nothing at all about Jesus' life 
between his birth and his death. It's like his whole life has been scrubbed out of it. All that matters is that he got born, whew, and that he died. Wow! The 33 years that he spends on earth, the example that he sets, the love that he shows, the inclusion that is his, the teaching that he brings, none of that gets to feature in the creed at all. The life that he lived and the way that he lived it, the example that he set, is completely missing. But there's another bit that's completely missing, a bit further down. Any guesses about that? We come to that in a minute. I'm just giving you a chance to think about it. But back to this first bit that is missing. Here is a quote from a very famous Christian that some of you have heard of. His name is Tom Wright. He used to be the Bishop of Durham, and he's a theologian. He works at St. Andrew's University. He says this, The great creeds, this is one of them, the Apostles' Creed, have been shaped and ex- have shaped and expressed the faith of millions of Christians in both Eastern and Western Christianity, the Orthodox Church and the Western Church. Um, and he says this, uh, they simply admit the middle section, the story of Jesus' actual life and the meaning this story conveys. Then he says, the Gospels give us a Jesus whose public career radically mattered as part of his overall accomplishment, which had to do with the kingdom of God, the kingship of God. The creeds give us a Jesus whose miraculous birth and saving death, resurrection, ascension are all we need to know. There's a whopping great hole in the creed. But back to this other hole, now you've had a chance to think about it. If that's one of the holes, what do you think the other hole might be? Well, I've left some question marks in where I think it should go. It's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint where it should go. Right, right, you're all thinking there, what is this that's going to be missing? The bit that's missing is any reference at all to the job of the church. It says, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that means the whole church, the communion of saints, that's those who follow Jesus, the forgiveness of sins... And then we lip straight on to the resurrection of the body. It's utterly self-centered. There's no concept of the church having a mission, the church being called to serve, us having anything to do. Jesus comes, he's born, he dies, we're forgiven, and then we wait as the church until we, you know, fly away. The concept of service, both on the part of Jesus and the part of the church, is completely absent from this creed. Now, there's a famous theologian, I have to say he's famous because nobody would have ever, ever heard of him. That's what, you know, if someone's really famous, you don't bother to say they're famous, do you? You don't have to say, and now, ladies and gentlemen, um, the president of the United States, he's really famous, you know. (laughs) So, this guy's called Carl Henry, and he really, truly was a famous theologian. And he was a dyed-in-the-wall, straight-down-the-line, conservative evangelical. And he made this quote in 1940. He rose to be the editor-in-chief of a magazine called Christianity Today, which is this big deal in conservative America. 
Do you know, it really is a big deal in conservative America. But this is what he said in 1941. Fundamentalism, conservative Christianity, is the modern priest and Levite bypassing suffering humanity. It's a reference, of course, to the story of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite, the religious people, walk straight past the suffering that they see in front of them. What he says is, the church has done this. They are, we are the priest and the Levite. We bypass all suffering. Anyway, so there it is. Tom Wright says, what we've done is we've somehow bypassed everything that the church should be doing. So I'd like us to look very briefly at this clause we've got to look at this morning. Um, It says, he ascended into heaven and he sits at the right hand side of God the Father. And um, Paul read to us this reading. He actually read a little bit, something a little bit longer than this. But in Acts chapter 1, verses 8 to 11, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Do you see, it starts where they are. You'll be my witnesses at home, right where you live, Jerusalem. And then the surrounding area, Judea. And then into foreign territories, Samaria. And then all the way to the ends of the earth. It's your job, says Jesus, to be engaged with the whole world. You will receive power and then get on with the job. So the fact that this has been dropped from the creed isn't some kind of minor point. It's an absolutely essential principle of everything we're about. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid them from their sight. He ascended and we hear all these stories, you know, you see, I didn't put any of these in, pictures of Jesus slowly kind of, you know, levitating off the ground and floating up into heaven. There he goes and they all stand there watching as Jesus goes up and up and up and up and up, you know, like some kind of um, early spaceship. Do you know, he's kind of making his way up. That's not actually what the text says. It's one of those funny myths that the church comes to believe and then says, I can't believe in this because it's really stupid. But actually, the text doesn't say that. The text says, after this, he was taken up from their very eyes and a cloud hid them, uh, him from their sight. And then this happens. It says, and they were looking intently up into the sky he's he's somehow disappeared as Jesus he's somehow disappeared this is after he's been resurrected from the dead he's spent some time with them coming and going he's sometimes there and sometimes not and now he disappears altogether and they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them men of Galilee they said why do you stand here looking up into the sky Why are you standing here? What they're really saying is, Jesus just told you what to do. You've got to go be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And you're here, all sat, looking up at the sky. Contemplation's a very good thing for a moment or two, but there's a task in hand. Get on with it. Now, last night was an extraordinary electrical storm, not just here in London, but across 
um, the UK, 50,000, I heard on BBC this morning, according to Andrew Marr, 50,000 uh, strikes of lightning everywhere. Look at that from Tower Bridge. The funny thing is, in years gone past, of course, centuries gone past, lightning wasn't understood. And so, um, do you know, it, it, we believed in this country and around the world that these were fiery dragons, that there are dragons in the skies and this is the fire from their mouths. And lightning was that. This was a view that was held for hundreds of years. That's what lightning actually is. And then, of course, in other places, and linked into this, lightning was uh, the power of the gods coming from their fingertips. Thor, for instance, the god Thor, who still features in endless Hollywood films. Pow! Thor does that. The point was, we saw something happening and we really didn't understand why. We could just see what was happening but didn't understand the science behind it or the meaning behind it. The truth is that if we really quizzed one another this morning right now, which we're not going to do, on what produces lightning and how it works, I think all still be quite muddled. I mean, some of us in this room would know absolutely and others would have uh, kind of vagueish understanding but not be really sure. What's described in this reading in the middle section is after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. The ascension that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father is a strong biblical teaching. Jesus talks about ascending to his, his Father himself. It's talked about constantly. On the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up in front of the crowd that's gathered. If you don't know that story, you can read it in Acts. Thousands of people, and he says, Jesus has ascended to the Father. If you read the letters that are written by Paul and others in the rest of the New Testament, they constantly refer to Jesus ascending. So it's really kind of quite juvenile of us to say, oh, it doesn't fit with what I understand, so we chuck that bit in the bin. It's not, however, that Jesus goes up like some kind of rocket, but as it says here, Jesus was taken away before their very eyes. And kind of like a cloud hid him. He'd gone. Now, a few years ago, probably more years than I um, uh, care to remember, when I left theological college, I used to get asked to speak endlessly in uh, universities. I still do. But never now about what I used to be asked to speak about then. Honestly, I went to university after university after university after university doing these talks. And there was only ever one talk. Honestly, there was. It was quite good, really, because once you'd done the stuff, prepared the stuff, you just trolled it out everywhere you went around the country. And this was the theme. They changed the title slightly, but the theme was this. Um, I can remember going to Cambridge um, which was quite a scary experience. I think it was the first time I ever spoke there. And this hall was packed with students, undergraduates, I guess, and some faculty. And the theme was, how can you, me, believe in God in an age of science? 
So I set out how I could believe in God in an age of science and everyone bombards you with, you can't possibly be that stupid to believe in God in an age of science. I tell you what, I constantly get invited back to speak at these colleges and universities who never pay you decent expenses, as I've learned. <laughs> no one ever, ever, ever even poses that question today. Have you noticed? How can you believe in God in an age of science has dropped off the agenda absolutely? And even the kind of very secularist end of things have totally disowned Richard Dawkins and co. They just say, like, you miss it, Richard. You're old. You don't get what's going on. In our society now, there's a quest for spirituality because we've suddenly learned that science doesn't answer all the questions. So why do I bother to say that now? I put it to you that with the lack still of spiritual perception in our society, we are hardly, the, we are hardly in any better position than first century bystanders to really know what happened with Jesus. These guys are summing this up as best they can in their language. They don't know. And they say, it's like a cloud. You just like hid him from us. But he's ascended to the Father. I guess it was what he was saying. And Jesus says, to his disciples before this happens and now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised but stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven the Bible teaches that Jesus lived the life the way that God chose for a life to be lived he lived it perfectly with humility and generosity he was the suffering servant servant he laid down his life he went the extra mile he took the blows instead of uh, uh, returning the blows he washed people's feet not just literally although he did that but he cared for people he served them he dis demonstrated that you find yourself by serving others if you're looking for yourself serve others serve God and you will find fulfillment if you avoid this principle you'll never be fulfilled no matter how rich your bank account is or big the car that you drive or the house that you live in you will be marooned and lost Jesus sets a different way of living and the Bible says that what God does after Jesus is risen from the dead is that Jesus goes somehow spiritually we still don't understand it because we're still grasping after this and he sits at God's right hand and that's important the creed says, and he sits at God's right hand. You sit at the right hand if you share the authority. You sit at the right hand if you are, if you like, the embodiment of the principle through which God operates in the world that he's created. Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who gives even his very life up, he sits at the Father's right hand. And now he's with the Father and Jesus has said, and when I go and the principle of the way I've lived is established and I sit at the right hand of my Father, I will send to you the Holy Spirit. 
Rowan Williams, who used to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, wrote this. It's worth reading. I'll read it to you. Um, Whatever we may be feeling from moment to moment, we've been given a relationship with Jesus that doesn't depend on being able to see him in the way his friends could during his earthly life and immediately after his resurrection. The indwelling presence of the Spirit that makes Jesus real to us just as much as it did to those early disciples. That's the truth that's contained in this creed. It misses what Jesus did with his life. It misses what we should be doing. But it still hangs on to this fact that they knew that Jesus had ascended and was sitting at the right hand of God his Father. But it doesn't roll out the meaning of it all. Jesus lived a life of sacrifice and service, of generosity and graciousness. And that's why he's been That's why he's ascended to his father. Paul writes about it. You probably know it if you've been a Christian for very long. He says this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Jesus, though he was like God, didn't hang on to equality with God, but he emptied himself and he became a servant and he went all the way to death on a cross. He gave everything and because of this... God has exalted him and given him a name that's above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. That, do you see? Because of the way Jesus lived, Jesus has ascended and the life that he lived is now at the right hand of God. It's the way that God deals with the world and us and it's the example that Christ sets. But Jesus also sends to us his spirit. So that we can all, we all now join in. Churches aren't meetings about God, as we often say. It's a meeting with God. When we dedicated Noah a little bit earlier, it wasn't kind of like, we're all going to really work hard at this, though we make a commitment. It's that we are actually asking for God's blessing on Noah's life, which is something even beyond anything that we can bring. We work hard at this, at this church with the community. we got to work to get this police station. But as Stu said, can we get the police to give it for nothing? There's nothing that we can do. I've written some strong letters. I've met a lot of people. We organized Thursday night. We're talking with Kate Hoey at the MP and et cetera, et cetera. We got them all backing us. We've met with the mayor's office. We've done all of that. I'm going to a meeting, I think, next week again at the mayor's office. But there is, a, like Stuart said, it's actually beyond us. We require... The power of God's spirit. Jesus says, wait here until you receive the spirit. Because I've ascended in this principle is set in place. Wait here, receive God's spirit and serve. In Zimbabwe, where there's hyperinflation again. uh, I was in the middle of Harare and there's like their Bank of England. It's called the Reserve Bank of uh, Zimbabwe. It's a giant building in the, uh, the middle of Harare. And, um, you know, they call Robert Mugabe Bob. I don't know if you know that. And they call him Bob. They, you know, they've allowed him to stay, etc. though he screwed them into the dirt. And, uh, and I went running one morning through, uh, uh, through the city. And Zimbabweans are extraordinarily friendly people. 
They really are. It's kind of incredible. So I'm running along, and this old Zimbabwean guy, um, he, he's, you know, two roads come together, and we're, we are together uh, running. So everybody says hello, good morning to you there. And they don't just say hello, good morning. Then you say hello, and then they say, what are you doing today? It's amazing. So he says, what are you doing today? And I says, oh, well, I'm just out for a run. And, and it was obvious he was. I said, do you run often? He said, yeah, I run most days. Um, I, I run most days. He said, I'm coming semi-retired. He's a guy in his late 60s. So we run along together, and I start asking him about the elections coming up and all that kind of stuff. And we run on and on, and we do this couple of miles, and we reach this great reserve bank, you know, like the Bank of Zimbabwe. And he laughs, and he says, you know, it's the, uh, it's, it's the Bank of Zimbabwe. He said, but around here, we just call it Bob's Takeaway. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Mugabe took $15 billion out of the country. $15 billion. Bob's Takeaway. Anyway, then we run on, and we run around it, we run back down the road uh, to the place, nearing the place where I met him. And about... So we're going to get there about two minutes' time. Do you know? I can see the place where I met him. And um, we're just running along, and then he stops, and he said, I'll have to leave you here. And I said, oh. And he said, yeah, this is where I live. And I realized that he was just finishing his run <laughs> when I met him. He only had about five yards to go, and he'd run the whole of these two miles with me just because everybody's that friendly. <laughs> you know, like... Isn't that amazing? But we work in Zimbabwe, and what we're doing there to create banking, to create microfinance, to set up business, is to bring God's kingdom. It's our bit. Jesus lives this life, and he calls us to live this life, and he's ascended to the Father with the purpose of establishing the principle of service and the principle of mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we're called to. The reason we run the food bank, and running the food bank here, it started, somebody called Joe began our food bank, actually, and um, it, we're now working with hundreds and hundreds of families each month. It's because we are called to do this in the power of the Spirit, but the real power of the Spirit is calling us to close down the food bank. You know that, don't you? Not to celebrate we've got one, but to end all food banks forever. That's what we've really got to do, not kind of pat ourselves on the back because we're giving out hundreds of meals, but weep that we're having to do it and to call on government that this has to stop. It has to stop and it has to stop now. And we will not do that unless the power of God's spirit is with us. Does that make sense? The reason we engage with the, the, the uh, London government around 62 murders through gangs and youth violence is the same reason as we set up this school. You know, ending youth violence isn't just being on the streets, it's setting up decent schools. As you know, the school we run in this building, South Bank, and the South Bank students played a real key role in uh, Thursday night's presentation. Today, although these kids, you know, there were some of the kids in our school here who actually, who were friends with the lad who was shot dead down the street, and some who witnessed it. Just a few witnessed it. But the thing is, this school is a haven of protection 
That's what it's about. It's about the, not just the fact that people pass English and maths, etc., etc., as important as that is. It's the fact that every child here grows healthily and is kept away from violence and can find a different pathway through life and out of the grinding poverty that traps so many kids in gang violence and youth violence. Does that make sense? That's what we are doing. That's what we're called to do. That's who we are. So, next time you read that, the, that in the creed that Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, don't go, oh, that's quaint. Say, this is the powerful principle that calls us now to engage in our communities. I close with some more words from Tom Wright. He said this, to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief. To give up the struggle to be God ourselves, to get it all done. And uh, with it, the inevitable despair of our constant failure. These tasks are beyond us. Instead, it's to enjoy our status as creatures working with God. That's what he's saying. Filled with God's spirit. Empowered by God's spirit. And called to live our lives by the same principles set out by the one who now sits at the right hand of God. Thank you.